From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The country's COVID emergency officially ends next week. Today, why that could leave many thousands of Coloradans in the lurch when it comes to health insurance. Then, the moon is about to get crowded with public and private missions. Coming up, the challenge of lunar coordination and communication. And back here on Earth, the anniversary of a fire that reshaped Denver. They tried to fight the fire, but there was no organized fire company. It was a volunteer effort. They were unable to control it. There were some winds from the south. I mean, we all know the spring winds around here pushing the fire, and it soon got out of control. Later, a different sort of laugh track. (laughs) Colorado bluegrass musician Travis McNamara releases an experimental record of sorts. When your car needs too many expensive fixes, donate it to CPR. It's super simple. We'll even get it picked up at your convenience. The proceeds support CPR, the service you turn to for fact-based news, and new and timeless music. Let your old car make great radio happen. Call 866-415-0005. That's 866-415-0005. Or get started at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Next week, the White House ends the COVID-19 emergency. And that's not just symbolic. Among other things, it means many thousands of Coloradans risk a lapse in their health insurance. CPR's Andrea Dukakis is following this story. Hi, Andrea. Hey, Ryan. We are talking about folks covered by Medicaid. Uh, Help us understand the pandemic connection here. Medicaid, of course, is the joint federal-state program that covers low-income people. The pandemic, as we know, meant many people's financial circumstances changed suddenly for the worse. So many more Coloradans applied for Medicaid, says Shira Matthews. She's with Doctors Care in Littleton. Uh, It's a health clinic for low-income patients. People initially went on because the economy went south. There was a lot of people getting laid off especially in the service industry, when their businesses went down. These are people that had need during the pandemic and applied and were accepted. At the same time, the federal government declared COVID emergencies, and Congress allowed people to stay on Medicaid without having to re-up their eligibility, so people remained on the rolls. But that's going away along with these emergency declarations. And people have been on there for, what, almost three years and haven't had to renew, haven't had to verify income, anything. So it's a new dawn with this, for sure. Seems reasonable. If you don't need the safety net plan, you shouldn't have it. Right. And there are some people who were eligible at one point for Medicaid who no longer qualified and shouldn't be getting the benefit, Matthew says. Let's pretend that I got a job for 150000 a year during the pandemic and was on Medicaid. I still stayed on Medicaid by a federal law. I never came off. So a lot of people don't possibly need Medicaid anymore and have jobs or moved out of state. So the real issue is people who do still qualify for Medicaid but don't realize they need to renew their status. Ah, because that's happened automatically, as you've said. 
right? The state is sending these renewal packets, um, asking folks to verify their income to see if they're still eligible for Medicaid. And the renewal dates differ based on when people originally signed up for help. Okay, that seems fairly straightforward. You just have to renew, send in some paperwork. Except this population deals with housing instability more than most, and the packet may not land in the right mailbox. Or if someone does receive it, they may not realize it's something they need to deal with, and it may be sitting on a shelf somewhere. Here's Maravel Klukman from the State Office of Healthcare Policy and Financing. Unfortunately, a good chunk might be members that did not respond to the packets. And those are the ones that we're we're highly sensitive to and trying to really encourage members to send their packets in and not be discontinued just because they didn't provide a response back. Klukman says they've been reaching out, sending texts, urging people to return these packets. And they've been working with counties and with providers like Shira Matthews at Doctors Care to just spread the word. Now, what happens if people on Medicaid who remain eligible after the emergencies are declared over. What if they don't get their information back? Well, they could indeed lose coverage, at least temporarily. The timing's complicated. The first wave that stands to lose coverage must get their packets in today. If they don't, their coverage expires at the end of the month. Here's Shira Matthews again. So I worry about our complex, chronically ill patients, and I don't want them to lose a single day. But I also worry about perhaps the mother with children that's been on in the system with Medicaid for years. The good news is the state has a safety net for its safety net. What do you mean? If folks find they've lost their Medicaid coverage when they end up in a doctor's office or at the hospital, they can still apply to renew and their coverage can even be retroactive. Oh, okay. But as we all know with health coverage, that could mean dealing with paperwork, bureaucracy, instead of this proactive process, returning the packets. Andrea, thanks for the explainer. Sure. CPR's Andrea Dukakis will link to information about Medicaid renewals and how to request that packet on today's podcast page at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. The moon is about to become very busy. The U.S. wants astronauts living and working there within the next few years. Other countries and private industry aren't far behind. It's a new space race for science and for profit. And somehow everybody's got to communicate. A new Colorado company aims to make that happen. Crescent Space Services is a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin Space. Joe Landon is its CEO, and he's in our studio. Hi, Joe. Hey, Ryan. How are you? I'm okay. Excited to talk about this. Uh, it's kind of like air traffic control to some extent on the moon. There, there has been talk about returning to the moon for a while. Why is now the crucial time? Like, what's it going to look like up there? Sure, yeah, I think what we've seen over the last several years is this big global effort to go explore and, uh, and, and even develop the moon. And the U.S. has the Artemis program, which also has um, brought in international partners from around the world. So we've seen sustained and significant investment in lunar exploration that is, that is driving this wave that we're seeing of, of uh, missions going to the moon. And is the idea that the moon holds something we want besides experience and information? Yeah, a couple things. I think experience and information are, are, are really big, big factors. The science and how we understand the Earth is really important, and the moon holds a, a key um, 
um, is a key factor for understanding the Earth and also the rest of the solar system and, and the universe. So we want to go and explore and understand how the, how the moon formed and what's there. Uh, but then you know, you're, you're, uh, you mentioned experience, like g- being able to go explore further in the solar system to Mars and, and maybe even places beyond that. Going to the moon first and learning and developing the technology and, and systems that we need to go further, the moon is really a key uh, starting point for that. Okay, so that's all the potential. And then we know that there will be lots of people and lots of companies and lots of nations there. If there isn't good communication and coordination, what sorts of calamity could occur? Yeah, it's, it, it's hard to do anything without communication. I think, you know, e- even just to bring it to something we, we all understand, you know, when you move into a new apartment, yeah. the first thing you do, it, what is it? it? It's go set up your cable, your your <laughs> internet, and your power, right? So This that, is the lunar equivalent right? of a new apartment. Okay. <laughs> That's right, right. We need infrastructure, right? So if you go to the moon, you're going to need to have these key services, the same types of things you'd need here. And communications, like being able to talk to home and to talk to each other on the moon, is really one of the first things that, that you'll need. And is it about avoiding calamity of some kind, of collision, or w- what is the benefit of coordination? Sure. So I think if we, we think ahead to you know maybe hundreds of, of different missions on the moon at, at any given time over the next 10 years, some wow. of those missions will be robots with, with uh, people controlling them from Earth. Some of them might be autonomous, operating you know, um, with some planned... Uh, planned programming, and others might have human crews on board. So we want to ensure the safety, certainly of those humans, but also these uh, these other systems that are up there so that we're not interfering with each other or running into each other. And there's a lot of money in this. That's right. So these are investments to protect. And your answer to this communication issue is to have satellites orbiting the moon, too, I think. Tell us about them, how they'll work. Sure. So we'll have, a, you know, Crescent. We'll be building a network. It's called Parsec. And it starts with two satellites orbiting the moon so that wherever you are on the lunar surface, you can connect to one of those satellites. Think of them as, as like a really tall cell phone tower huh. uh, for the moon so that you can use that satellite to then connect back to Earth or to other other systems or people uh, on the lunar surface. Now, why do we need lunar satellites? Couldn't you just connect to the ones orbiting Earth? Are those just too far away? Yeah, they're too far away. Okay. And the satellites around Earth... Uh, just about all of those are, are facing the Earth. So the moon is, is quite quite a far distance away from the Earth, and uh, we need specialized satellites there, really built for the purpose of connecting to people and systems on the moon. Do you have the far side of the moon problem with satellites around the moon? No, that probably solves yeah, the issue. Yeah, so, so that's, that's, a, that's a great point. The, having satellites around the moon solves that problem. So the moon, the way it works is it's tidally locked to Earth. So the, the side of the moon that you see that when you look up at night yeah. is always the same side of the moon. And the part that's facing away from the moon or from the Earth is always the same side facing away from the Earth. So if you send a person or a robot to that far side of the moon, there's no uh, line. You can't see the Earth. So a radio signal won't be able to reach the Earth from that far side. So you need to go up to a satellite and then connect back to Earth. Who's in charge? What's the common mm-hmm. language? And, you know, well, like, why is it Crescent? Why isn't it a Chinese company or a Japanese company or a European company? Yeah, no, this is an area where uh, we're still figuring out the rules. I think that there are some common standards and some analogies we can use for Earth, like the law of the sea or, or, or some of these, um, how we coordinate satellites around Earth. Are, are, we're taking lessons from that. Um, I think we actually have to go out there and try to do some, some more things. And as more missions develop, uh, we'll need to make more rules. Is there common understanding that Crescent satellites will be the way people communicate? 
It'll Maybe be one of the ways. I, mean, I think it'll be one of the ways. I think NASA and other governments, like you mentioned, will have their own uh, government systems. But there's a really important role for commercial systems as well, because those government systems have to be used for the really uh, critical government missions. And then there's a lot of other science that can be done and a lot of other development and, and commerce that will need a commercial network. Fascinating. Do you imagine someday there will actually be towers built on the moon? Yeah, I think so. Communication I mean, towers. Yeah, is. I think that it might look a little different from what's on Earth. So when uh, you land a rover on the moon, yeah. uh, those rovers or those landers uh, might have a little communications antenna on it that connects to our network, our Parsec network. And that will be the first tower, so to speak, on the moon. I understand you're hoping to have this ready by 2025 when NASA's Artemis three is scheduled to land at the South Pole with a crew. So... Help me understand the relationship here. NASA is basically contracting out for its, you know, lack of a better term, phone system. Mm -hmm. you're, right. you're coordinating with them, but then you're also beyond NASA to some extent, too. Right. And, and if we look at how NASA has done a lot of the um, space exploration efforts recently, it's uh, in a commercial way. So the government and NASA is still the customer, but they're not the only customer. Uh -huh. So there are other national space agencies and other commercial companies that are performing missions on the moon that can use our network. So that way NASA doesn't bear the full cost or, or, of the system, and we can build a commercial network to help the uh, really kickstart the lunar economy. Do you have this contract, or, or, or have you turned this into Shark Tank? Not yet. Yeah, not yet. So NASA has d done a, uh, a really good job of describing what it needs. So we're working with NASA and other companies, too, to meet those needs and also understand the broader market of, of who else could use our system. Oh, so there's competition in this. Absolutely. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, let's talk for a moment about the South Pole mm -hmm. and why that spot is particularly important. Are there resources there? Yeah, we, we know that there's water and other resources there. And uh, that is really the focus of NASA's scientific exploration is the South Pole uh, so that we can start to understand where those resources are, water in particular. Maybe harness them so that the mission can continue. That's right, yeah. So water you can use to sustain human life, but you can also use that water to create fuel uh, to la launch things off of the moon, for instance. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, and Joe Landon joins us. He's CEO of Crescent Space Services. It's a new subsidiary of Lockheed Martin Space in Colorado, and they're developing a communication system for the moon. Uh, the base of that are two satellites that will orbit the moon. And are those satellites similar to ones that we launched for Earth? Are they adapted somehow? Yes, uh, they're, they're similar in that they will receive and transmit communication signals, but they are, there are some special requirements to go outside of Earth orbit. So the, the environment in space is a lot harsher at the moon than it is relatively protected when you're just around the Earth. So they are a little bit different. But these, is, is that just an atmospheric question? No, it's more like radiation. Radiation, like In space, yeah. the deeper you get into space, the more uh, radiation you're, you're exposed to. Okay. And other like uh, meteorites or other types of um, hazards uh, are a little bit uh, more challenging to deal with out at the moon. So you've got special plates on this, uh, armor, they're just hardier. I mean, yeah, a little bit hardier, and the electronics have to be a little different than if you're close to the Earth because they have to withstand uh, more radiation exposure. How does the satellite, how do this, the satellites, because it's a pair of them, uh, how do they get placed? Mm -hmm. So we'll launch our Parsec satellites along with other missions that are also going to the moon. So there'll be, you know, it's, it's essentially like a bus that leaves to the moon. And yeah, with payload. Everybody, all the payloads hop on and we go out to the moon. And then our satellites get themselves into the right orbit 
around the moon and then set up and start uh, uh, sending signals back to Earth. But they get in place from where? From the craft that's bringing them Mm -hmm. there? Or they are brought to the surface of the moon and then somehow... So our our satellites will be orbiting the moon. So they'll be sent on a trajectory towards the moon. And then the the Parsec satellites have little engines, little um, rocket engines on them, so that they can then slow down and get into the right orbit. get right into place. That's right, yeah. Well, I suppose that Lockheed Martin Space and Crescent Space Services has an eye on what might occur beyond the placement of the satellites. So if you're able to get there, you know, what other potential kind of harnessing of business mm-hmm. purposes could you do? Yeah, so so we when we built the, the, or started the idea of Crescent and the Parsec network, you know, information and uh, communication really was the first infrastructure. Our satellites also can do basically like a, a lunar GPS, so they can provide navigation signals to rovers or landers or other systems on the surface. So we can start to help people navigate on the surface. And then later, we want to really build the information infrastructure for the moon. So we can store data, uh, science data or other data for, for missions at the moon. And then we can even do cloud computing at the moon. So really to manage people's information uh, at the moon. Oh, so these satellites could become the cloud? Yeah. Do they have like storage mm-hmm. on board. That's right. And, and that helps us do better science because right now, if you want to do process some data that you dis- uh, that you collected on the moon, you have to send that information all the way back to Earth to be processed on an Earth computer. If we could do it at the moon, we can do things faster and we could be more efficient. Joe, before we go, to what extent does lunar research today depend on those initial lunar missions, like the one small step. Right. Is that still history, science, data, information you harness for something decades later? Yeah, really the the, the exploration and develop of the moon really builds on each other, builds uh-huh. on previous uh, missions. So even the Apollo missions, we're still learning new information from those missions and using that to help develop better uh, missions for the future. Wait, you're still learning from Apollo? Yeah, absolutely. How, how, what data does that provide? Well, sometimes we have new types of instruments or new types, of, or just new questions that we want to ask. So we can go back to that original data and help to shape the, the future missions. Mind blown. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Joe Landon, CEO of Crescent Space Services. It's a new subsidiary of Lockheed Martin Space in Colorado. The film's, the firm that is, is developing a communication system for the moon. We'll be right back with a destructive fire that a lot of people saw coming. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. One big proposal for our big problems with water in the Southwest is to bring some in from a part of the country that has more of it. It rained like eight inches in one day. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis. On the latest episode of CPR's new podcast about the Colorado River, we explore the boldest idea of all. Find Parched wherever you get podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver wouldn't look like it looks today if it hadn't been for a destructive fire known as the Great Fire of 1863. It took place in springtime. And Jason Hansen of History Colorado is going to tell us about it. Jason, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. Tell us just a bit about Denver leading up to the fire. Like, what did the city look like? Yeah, so the descriptions we have bring to mind for me a sepia-toned photograph. Uh-huh. Lots of browns, lots of talk about dust and mud and dirt uh, in the streets. 
one article memorably described it as treeless, grassless, and bushless. And, you know, despite the fact that Denverites are starting to think of themselves as the queen city of the plains, travel writers are saying things like, it looked like a city was being carried to somewhere else and got accidentally dropped here. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a... Not much of a It's an aspiring city. It's an aspiring city. It may not feel completely at ease with itself. But of course, buildings are springing up and streets are springing up. Absolutely, yeah. And if a quick plug for History Colorado, if anyone wants to actually see as close as we can tell exactly what it looked like, we have the famous Denver diorama constructed by the WPA during the Depression. This is a look at Denver in 1860. You can see many of the structures that were present at the fire. You can see that, that building going on. There are structures under construction in, in the diorama, they are made of uh, toothpicks and matchsticks, but uh-huh. uh, they would have been wood, frame, pine, either hauled in from the east or from the mountains nearby. Okay, so mostly wood construction. That's going to play a pivotal role here in a moment. Naturally, what brought many settlers here is the gold rush, right? That's right. People rushed from the east and some even from the west and the south. Uh, they came from every direction when word got out that there was gold in these here hills. But then there's another group of people that's part of any gold rush. And those are the people who we often refer to as mining the miners. There was, <laughs> you know, you might strike it rich, but you could do a pretty good trade in boots or shovels. Shovels. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then in one night, it's almost gone. What What happened in 1863 in April? Overnight on April 19th, 1863, somewhere around two or three in the morning, and this is a Sunday morning, so people are asleep. They're, you know, maybe anticipating getting up for church or just sleeping in and and having a, a day off. But a fire starts at a place called the Cherokee House. This is a saloon and hostel, and many saloons at the time were also hostels for all of the people arriving. They provided a place to sleep. You'd go upstairs after you'd maybe had a little something to drink. That's right, a little little sleeping potion, and then uh, you'd <laughs> sleep upstairs and come back down and do whatever you needed to do for the day. So the, the Cherokee House uh, was the first place where people noticed the fire between 2 and 3 in the morning. And they tried to raise the alarm, tried to fight the fire, but there was no organized fire company. It was a volunteer effort. Oh. And... Uh, They were unable to control it. There were some winds from the south. I mean, we all know the spring winds around here pushing the fire, and it soon got out of control and then burned whole blocks until what was the business district at the time, the majority of uh, the city at that time, and what we would think of today as Lodo Uh had uh, been burned down to ash. It took them until daylight, basically, to control the fire. They were pulling down structures, trying to make fire breaks. They were wetting down buildings with water from Cherry Creek or the Platte trying to slow it down. But it took them several hours. And as the sun came up, they looked out and they saw that most of their city had been reduced to ash. My goodness. And so do we have any sense of what happened at the Cherokee Hotel? Was that it? Cherokee House. Cherokee House that would have led to this. Well, so there were rumors immediately after the fire circulating that it had been uh, deliberately set There had been a couple of other instances of uh, vigilantes burning down saloons in the months preceding this. And so there were uh, suspicions immediately that this had been a similar 
instance. Um, with, with the idea of saying no to alcohol or that, and temperance? Uh, maybe not complete prohibition, but uh, trying to weed out the worst behavior, maybe huh. the the saloons that they felt were encouraging some especially inappropriate vices. It was not clear at all that it was, in fact, arson, and it could well have been a fire in the stove at the back of Cherokee House, catching the uh, wood building on fire. Was anyone hurt, anyone killed? No, there were, again, some conflicting reports in the early days, but uh, it emerged that everyone was able to escape. The folks from the Cherokee House ran out in their pajamas. They didn't have much time, but once the alarm was raised, people were able to get out. In fact, the the effort shifted um, when they realized the fire was out of control. Many of them just started carrying belongings out of the businesses and trying to put them in safe places. The, the creek bed in Cherry Creek actually became a repository for lots of furniture and, and other goods. To there spare were, it from the fire. I'm thinking that though there are some accommodations above the pubs, it's mostly a business district early, early on a Sunday. So that had something to do, I imagine, with the lives spared. That's right. Remarkable, though, that there appeared to be no deaths. That's correct. Yeah. Okay, to the idea of wood structures, what changed after this fire? So from Denver's earliest days, people had been sounding off on their concerns that fire was a risk. And this is something that happened just across the West in these boom towns. They would be hastily constructed out of wood, and then they would burn. You know, if you were watching from outer space, you might sort of wonder at the show that was going on Mm -hmm. beneath. Uh, Oh, there goes another town. Well, yeah, and where is this in relation to the Great Chicago Fire, by the way? So the Great Chicago Fire comes a little bit after. A little after, Uh okay. There's uh, the Great San Francisco Fire, which happens in 1851, is fresh on people's minds. Everyone is aware of this. And towns before and after continue to burn. Uh, Central City burns in the 1870s. Um, Cripple Creek and Victor burn separately in the 1890s. This just keeps happening over and over again. And when does someone say, you know, maybe we should think of brick? Well, (laughs) in Denver, that moment comes about a day and a half after the fire. City Council had actually considered brick before. There were some ordinances in place, things like you can't stack hay within 150 feet of a business that maintains a fire. But the business community had been reluctant to adopt a brick ordinance because it's much more expensive Mm -hmm. to build from brick. But within a very short amount of time, just a couple of days after the, the fire city council gets together and establishes a new ordinance within what they call the fire limits, which is essentially the entire downtown on both sides of Cherry Creek, that all buildings uh, must be built from brick. From brick. And what, overnight a brick industry is born? I mean, you need artisans for that. It's true. And there were some brick buildings going up. So there were already brick layers and brick supply lines. But you do see the papers saying it's going to be a really good summer to get into the brick business. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, so many blocks and blocks of Denver really outside of the core I think of as teeming with bricks. That's right. And that really, it begins in 1863. You see people actually sort of after the smoke has cleared saying, well, you know, this might actually have a silver lining because we needed to upgrade our city if we want to be 
the queen city of the of plains. The plains. I mean, this goes back to where we started, which is that Denver had not exactly impressed travel writers. And maybe this was the start of something that felt a bit more permanent. That's exactly right. And anyone who would like to go walk around Lodo today can still see some of these buildings. I mean, this is uh, what Larimer Square is, for instance. It is some of those original buildings, and they're, they're beautiful. Let's zoom in on one rebuilding story, uh, and that has to do with the Barney Ford building at 15th and Blake. Mm -hmm. Barney Ford is a black man who came to Colorado as part of the gold rush and then settled in to mine the miners. He was running a barber shop really just a few storefronts down from where the fire began at Cherokee House. So his shop was one of the first, presumably, to burn. To burn. It was a, a tiny little barber shop, and he had just started to advertise that he was also serving food. He was calling it the People's Restaurant. That might have been more ambition than, than fact. But in the aftermath of the fire, Barney Ford, who is no stranger to rebuilding, if you know Barney Ford's life story, he goes and gets a loan for $9,000, uh, a very large sum hmm. at this time, despite the fact that interest rates are 25%. Oh, goodness. Yeah, this is... Uh, Makes today look positively reasonable. Exactly. Yeah, Boomtown banking business was very uncertain and the interest rates were exorbitant. Uh, but Barney Ford rebuilds bigger. He builds his people's restaurant with a barbershop down in the basement. And uh, by August, he is reopened and he is advertising fresh oysters and lemons and Havana cigars and the finest liquors. And he seems to develop a following among the people of Denver. They really, really like his restaurant. This is very quickly after the fire. That's right. He wastes no time. This is his livelihood. He needs to, to get back in business. Uh, forget a phoenix. And, it's oysters rising from the ashes. That's right. Oysters were incredibly popular in Denver in the 1860s. As it turns out, it was just possible to ship them on ice to Denver. And I guess enough people were able to eat them without getting sick that <laughs> <laughs> people loved them. They, you see them advertised everywhere. everywhere. And of course, these are not Rocky Mountain oysters, which are a different food altogether. Happily, we don't think so. Did anything survive in the core from before the fire? Is there any evidence of something today? Uh, no, very little survived. They basically rebuilt the whole thing. In fact, there were a couple of uh, fireproof warehouses that advertised themselves as safe to store your goods in. Uh -huh. uh, people in, in actually, quotation marks, fireproof. That's, that's right. So some people, instead of moving their belongings to Cherry Creek, move them into these fireproof warehouses that night, and then those burned down. Um, there were there were reports of uh, piles of bacon burning for days afterwards. Bacon? Bacon, apparently, yeah. The bacon will burn. I don't know. Don't try this at home. Thank you so much, Jason, for being with us. It's my pleasure always, Ryan. Thank you so much. Jason Hansen is creative director at History Colorado, recounting the story of the Great Fire of 1863 in Denver. A note that History Colorado is a financial supporter of CPR News. Residents of a Denver mobile home park are trying to buy it before the owner sells it to someone else. Denverite's Rebecca Tauber explains they're taking advantage of a relatively new state law, but there are no guarantees. 
Josephine Sullivan has lived in Capital City Mobile Home Park in southwest Denver since the 1950s. Back then, she helped pour concrete and build out the park herself, and rent was around $30 a month. Now it's $800. Next door, the Loya family makes Sullivan dinner and keeps her company. Recently, they threw her a 95th birthday party. I call them my family because they take care of me. But that could change because the park is up for sale. Across the country, mobile home parks are now regularly getting sold to investors who raise rent or redevelop the property and evict tenants. In the one where Sullivan lives, the consequences could be severe. Kids who walk to school and parents who walk to work would likely struggle to find housing nearby. Some residents live on fixed incomes and others are undocumented and cannot access housing resources. Sullivan isn't sure what she would do if she had to leave. It would be hard on a lot of people. It's still, in a way, a little cheaper than an apartment or buying a home. And that's why I'm still here. And it's why Sullivan's neighbors are organizing to buy the park, seeking funds from nonprofits and the city in order to run it themselves. Residents in Leadville did this in 2021. A state law passed since then to make it easier by giving tenants in mobile home parks 120 days to raise the cash to buy the land. In Denver, owner Chad Graves said he's open to selling to residents if they can pay, but he's already gotten an outside offer. The tenants don't have time to waste. Cautionary tales exist across the state. In Aurora and Fort Collins, residents raised funds and the owners refused to sell to them anyway. But if the capital city residents succeed, over 70 families would be able to stay put, and the park would be the first of its kind in Denver. Rebecca Tauber, Denverite. And Colorado Matters continues shortly with a plethora of plates. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Every person has a story. But sometimes those stories are lost, ignored, or drowned out. That's why CPR News and Denver 7 have teamed up to bring you stories of people in underserved communities. On Real Talk, I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Micah Smith. Get unique, in-depth stories from those not often heard from on the news. Real people, real voices, real talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. Fridays at 3.30 and Mondays at 6.30. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado is getting a new specialty license plate to celebrate its 150th birthday. The state, of course, already has a slew of different plates. CPR's May Ortega connected with a listener who was curious about all the options for drivers who want to add some flair to their ride. We've all seen Colorado's default license plate. It's green with white snowy mountains, very on brand. But there are a lot of so-called specialty plates too, like the nature conscious plate that Michael Downing of Lakewood has. It's blue and white. And in the middle, there's a picture of a river and uh, maybe a couple trees coming down the middle, but it's a really nice picture and it says protect our rivers. 
Downing works in water management, so this plate was perfect for him. To get it, he had to make a donation of $25 or more to Colorado Trout Unlimited. That's a nonprofit that works to protect and restore fish habitats. And they give you a certificate, and then you can take that to the DMV and redeem it for your license plate. 100% of his donation went to the nonprofit, plus he paid $50 in state fees. He liked the plate so much, he even got a second set for his other car. All of this made Downing wonder about other license plates. Why there are so many of them. And I would like to know about all the different plates. First, let's get something straight. We are talking about specialty plates. Those have distinct designs on them. That's different from personalized plates, also known as vanity plates, which have custom characters on them. You can have both, but for this story, we're just talking about different designs. And it turns out Colorado has more than 200 to choose from. I really like the uh, American Indian Scholar Plate, uh, the American Horse Plate, the Rocky Mountain National Park Plate. That's Chris Hockmuth. He's the license plate inventory manager for Colorado's Department of Revenue. He says one of the newest options has a bee sitting on a colorful flower. It's called Support Pollinators, and it has become very popular very quickly. So it's been out just a little over six months, and they're getting a pretty good following. How big, you ask? 843 since July. If you're interested in showing your love for the pollinators, you first have to make a donation to the People and Pollinators Action Network. Most of the plates benefit a cause or an organization. Are you a fan of the Colorado Rockies baseball team? Make a donation of $52.80, see what they did there, to the team's charitable foundation, then a purple plate with the Rockies logo is yours. Some plates are more exclusive, like the ones that are only available if you've served in the armed forces. So, what is the most popular plate? If you've paid enough attention on the road, you may have an idea. Columbine plate currently has 80,787, and it is among the top. This plate honors the victims and survivors of the attack at Columbine High School in 1999. It has a blue sky, a lavender stripe on the bottom, with the state flower, a columbine, in the center. Below the flower, it reads, Respect Life. And here's an interesting fact. After the Colorado Avalanche won another hockey championship last summer, the team's plate got more popular. At the end of June, which was when the Stanley Cup was, there were 3,900 avalanche plates, and as of the end of December, there were 4,600. But this is Broncos country, and Denver's football team by far has the most popular sports plate, with almost 18,000. So, what if you have an idea for a plate? Well, first, you need to collect 3,000 signatures. Then your proposal goes through the legislative process. If enough state lawmakers vote to approve it, then your plate can adorn bumpers all across the state. And the 3,000 signatures is usually what trips most people up. But uh, for the folks that are serious about it, especially two years ago with the pollinator plate and the firefighter plate, they managed to get it done and, and pound a bill through the General Assembly, and it was, it was awesome. I'm May Ortega, CPR News. If you have a question about our state, let us know at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. And while you're there, check out a ranking of Colorado's most popular plates. Still to come, a bluegrass musician who made a rule for himself. Absolutely no bluegrass.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Bees mean honey and hives. Honeybees came to North America from Europe in the 17th century and are important to agriculture as pollinators, especially for non-native crops. But when it comes to native flowering plants, the job is best done by native bees. And Colorado is home to nearly a thousand species. Most are solitary. Each female builds her own nest in a tunnel and works alone to gather pollen and nectar for her young. She lives just four to six weeks during warm weather, then dies. But the larvae she leaves behind will go through the winter encased in cocoons and emerge when it warms up, ready to repeat the cycle. With native bees losing more and more habitat to human development, I-76 was designated as a pollinator highway a few years ago. Gardeners can help too, as native bees live underground, leave some areas without mulch to help them and other beneficial insects. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Poignant, gritty, intimate. Words that have been used to describe Moon Calendar, the new album from Denver singer-songwriter Travis McNamara. Are you busy? Could I bend your ear a while? Things are mulling over And I cannot quite tell why I can taste her on my lips I can smell her on my clothes McNamara may be best known as the banjo player for Trout Stake Revival. When the pandemic put a halt to that bluegrass band's touring schedule, McNamara found himself craving a creative outlet. So he joined a virtual songwriting community with a bunch of other Denver musicians. And we'd have to make recordings and send them into each other, and we'd all listen to them together. So it was like accountability group which I really needed, and just like community time that I, I like totally looked forward to those every couple weeks. So it was this crazy confluence. It was like something I've wanted to do for a long time, finally had the time to do it, was starting to do all of this exploration and like glut of songwriting through this online songwriting group and doing so much more like exploration of my home studio uh, and trying to scale up sound and, you know, learn new instruments and stuff that eventually you kind of look down and you're like, oh, I, I think there's enough maybe for a record here. He points to the track So Far Gone as an example of what he benefited from the most, the deadlines. There's pressure, you know? I really look up to everybody that's in this group, and it is not an option to show up empty-handed. It's always the same thing. It was like, you know, Wednesday at 7 p.m., that's when it was happening. You know, there's two weeks or a month in between, Maybe not procrastinating, but you're just like marinating, thinking about it, or maybe you are procrastinating. (laughs) But a lot of times it would come down to like Tuesday day, Tuesday night, Wednesday afternoon. I got to figure this out because it's like in two hours. I remember that one. It's like it pulled it out of me. One of the other writers in there, I played it and they were like, wow, that really sounds like you needed to like move some energy talking about someday getting out of here leaving it behind yeah some people say you could have had it any way you wanted 
Don't let the banjo here fool you. In putting together this album, McNamara gave himself one rule. I can't write bluegrass music. Just because I've been playing it for like, you know, 10, 12, 13 years with Trout Snake, which I've loved and which has been awesome. I knew that there was a hunger in me that was just like wanting to explore outside of that and kind of find my own range and like do some voyaging. So it was kind of interesting, like having a prompt that was a negative. Okay, if I can't write bluegrass music, then it's like all the other doors are open. (laughs) The first single from Moon Calendar, titled In C, the letter C, doesn't sound like the rest of the record and finds McNamara at his most far out. He drew inspiration from an episode of Radiolab about the composer Terry Riley. He made this minimalist song that was all based around one note of C, on the middle C on the keyboard. The episode that I was listening to was a bunch of different musicians who were submitting their own versions of In C. So they just like made songs that were all sort of minimalist and were all around key of C. And even though I missed, you know, the entry window or whatever, I was like, I'm going to enter the contest, you know, I want to make my own In C. The result is a collage of found sound, a baby cooing, birds chirping, sheep bleating, and Gandhi. All I can see... In the midst of this, life persists. In the midst of untruth, truth persists. It was really fun, man. I like went to the Denver Library and like got a drive time French, how to speak French in your car. Bonjour, comment ça va? Ça va? one sample in there that is me and uh, the bass player from Trout Snake Revival, Casey Hulahan. It's us laughing. I recorded like an hour-long practice that we had, you know, forever ago. It was just so much fun, you know. That was between takes or something that somebody made some stupid joke and we were laughing. And I grabbed that and it felt so good in there that I was like, oh, I want, I want some more laughter in here, you know. But like if you're looking around on sound libraries for laughter, all you get is a bunch of fake canned laughter. And so I was like, what is a context in which actual laughter happens and it is being recorded at the same time? And the thing that I associated to was when people get the giggles during an interview and they're like, can't, it's irrepressible laughter and it's being recorded. And so I found a bunch of those on YouTube of like news anchors losing it. And like, I think one of them is Emma Watson losing it. And, uh, They're just all great. Producing this record, Moon Calendar, all by himself in the isolation of the pandemic, was also an opportunity to learn new instruments. Saxophone was brand new. This was my first time doing stand-up bass. This is my first time really doing electric bass. Upright bass was actually the hardest instrument. Between that and the egg shaker. Egg shaker is impossible. Like, to do that one motion for three and a half minutes, 
it was like two minutes and 15 seconds. Almost every time my body just like shut down. It's a confounding tiny instrument. <laughs> in all, McNamara plays 16 different instruments on this album, including slide guitar for the song Let It Out. I definitely learned slide guitar for this because they were like, it needed butter. Like it needed some long tones. And I love like Jason Isbell and I love Bonnie Raitt. Just those slide tones, I thought it would be so cool, but I'd, I'd never done it before. So, I mean, some of those takes, that's a lot, that's, that's a long road <laughs> it got there. These days, Travis McNamara is happy to have emerged from the studio and to be collaborating again in person. I like the two things. They're kind of apples and oranges, like recording music and getting to play all these different instruments and just sort of like layering. It feels kind of like oil painting or something, you know? And playing with other people in the live scenario and feeling each other's beats and like, and working off of each other's choices is fun in a totally separate way. After three years of oil painting, it's great to play with some other people. (laughs) Tonight, McNamara hosts his album release show at his favorite Denver venue, the Bluebird Theater. He'll perform with several friends and fellow artists, happy to have them take some ownership of his songs. Everybody that I'm working with for the show, I'm like, listen, I don't want to recreate the thing that I made. I want to work with you all for your choices. You know, if you guys are artists, like, I want you to do what feels right to you, you know? And getting to bring in some of these, like my favorite musicians from past little collaborations just in one night. It's awesome. I take it in and I spit it out and I marinate on what it's all about. And if I see it here, elements in all of my peers Denver's singer-songwriter and multi-multi-instrumentalist, Travis McNamara. Tonight, he celebrates the release of his debut solo album, Moon Calendar, with a show at the Bluebird Theater in Denver. That is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that kept me going through the pandemic. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, 
Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC.